Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by the French Lick Resort, the PGA Tour Superstore, the Bobby Jones Apparel Company, Ben Hogan Golf, Two Under, Taylor Made Golf, and Golf Pride. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for coming back and joining me tonight on Next on the T. I hope you and yours are safe and healthy. I'm very thankful that you're here. I'm also very thankful to everybody who went online to podcastmagazine.com last month and voted for Next on the T for their Hot 50 list. Thanks to you all, we debuted at number 26. It's very humbling and excited to have the show make that list. We'd sure like to stay on it. If you don't mind, please take a few seconds to go to podcastmagazine.com and scroll down on their homepage to where you see Hot 50, right? Vote for your favorite podcast for the Podcast Magazine Hot 50 list. You'll see a little section there. And click right on it, and you can vote for up to three podcasts. And if you're looking for two other podcasts to vote for, please consider my good friend Mitch Lawrence and his show Talking Golf Getaways. And another great friend, Gus Farad, and his show Huddle Up with Gus. You can subscribe to the magazine while you're on there. It's a free magazine that gets delivered right to your email inbox. But you don't have to subscribe in order to vote. So if you don't want to subscribe to the magazine, we just appreciate your support and your vote. It means a great deal to me. Thank you so much for doing that. All right, let's get on to tonight's show. I've got three fantastic guests that I'm looking forward to sharing with you. First up tonight is going to be longtime friend of the show and top 100 instructor every year since 2011 and that's Eric Johnson. Eric's going to be making his 16th appearance with me tonight, and as we always do, we'll be getting Eric's take on the state of the game and what's going on in and around the PGA Tour. We'll hear what he thinks about the rest of the golf season and what that might be like, plus we'll get some tips to help save you some strokes as well. Looking forward to having Eric on the show. He'll join me in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a return visit from Paul Levy. Paul is the former president of the PGA of America. Going to get his thoughts on what to expect from the tour when it returns next month as well. What could happen with the Ryder Cup. And we'll also talk about the great charitable work that he and the PGA of America have done for so many organizations. Hey, look, folks, PGA Tour has topped $3 billion in charitable donations. So looking forward to hearing those stories and a whole lot more when Paul joins me at the bottom of the hour. Then we'll round out tonight's show with a return visit from 2003 PGA champion Sean McKeel. I want to get Sean's thoughts on this season on the Champions Tour and when we might be able to see him back out there. Plus, we'll also talk about dealing with pressure. Was the pressure more difficult to deal with when he was trying to get through Q School or when he was trying to win the PGA Championship? Plus, we'll revisit his 2006 World Match Play victory over Tiger. Beat him in the first round of that tournament, 4-3. and three. We'll also talk about his incredible 7-iron shot on the final hole of the 2003 PGA Championship. That shot finished 2 inches from the hole. If you haven't seen that shot, folks, go out on YouTube and take a look at that shot. It was amazing. Might be the greatest shot on a final hole in a major championship ever. And Sean never saw where it finished until he got up to the green. 
So we'll hear that story and more when Sean joins me about 45 minutes from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the T. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Always like to kick off the show by saying hello to my friends Mitch and Matthew Lawrence and reminding you about their great shows. Please check out Mitch's podcast, like I mentioned a moment ago, Talking Golf Getaways. You can stream it online by going to GolfTripX.com. It's also on great sites like Audio Boom, Stitcher, and Player.fm. Mitch and his co-host, Darren Bunch, they take you around the U.S. and Canada, some of the great places that you can go stay and play. Plus, they also talk about some of the hidden gem courses that you might not be aware of. Again, go online to GolfTripX.com to check out their podcast. Matthew's show is called Backspin Golf. It's my regular Sunday morning, 8.03 a.m. Eastern Tea Time. You can stream the show live by going online to WLXG.com or downloading the WLXG app. Features our good friend Perry French in their first segment every week, so you know they're going to kick off the show with a lot of great tips and content there at the top. Matthew has a lot of great guests every week, and he's a wonderful friend and a fantastic host, and the show is great as well. Check it out, Backspin Golf. It's on ESPN Radio, WLXG, and WLXG.com. Please also check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Apparel Company by going online to bobbyjones.com. They've got their new spring collection out right now, and you've got great spring sweaters, polos, and pants, all fantastic. And you're going to see Steve Stricker, Miguel Angel Jimenez, and Ernie Els wearing them out on the Champions Tour this year. Check it out online by going to bobbyjones.com and enter the coupon code on the T to save 20% at checkout. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade Sim, featuring the new Sim driver designed with a radical new head shape to make the driver both fast and forgiving where you need it most on the downswing. Sim irons with an improved speed bridge and echo dampening system to deliver a distance iron with forge-like feel. And the Sim fairway woods with low CG to help you hit it higher and a V-steel sole to launch it even easier out of any lie. Go get fit for Sim throughout your entire bag and experience the effect it's going to have on your entire game. Check it out online by going to tailormadegolf.com for information on the all-new Sim family. All right, now back in making his 16th appearance with me here on Next on the T is one of the top instructors on the planet, one of the great people you get to meet in this life, and that's Eric Johnson. Let me remind you about Eric's background. He played his college golf and was a four-year letterman at Mississippi State from 1992 to 95, helped them win back-to-back Kroger intercollegiate titles in 94 and 95. Golf Magazine has named Eric a top 100 instructor every year since 2011. He's also been recognized by Golf Digest as a top 40 under 40 teacher. He is a four-time Tri-State PGA Teacher of the Year and also a four-time Horton Smith Award winner for his contributions to education. Eric played out on the Canadian Tour the Sunshine Tour, and the Golden Bear Tour. He was the Director of Instruction at Oakmont Country Club for many years, more recently the Director of Instruction at Nemecolin Woodlands Resort, and soon to be at the Pete Dye Club in West Virginia and Catanic Country Club up in Catanic, Pennsylvania. Eric is not only one of my all-time favorite guests, and like I said a moment ago, one of my favorite people on the planet, and it's always a great honor to have him as part of the show. Hey, E, how are you, my friend? Hey, Chris, thanks for the introduction, and I I've said it before, and I'll say it again. You're the most prepared man in radio. I, I don't know how you do it. You make me blush every time, but I think I trade most <laughs> all that stuff for Sean's uh, PGA Championship. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. So 
E, yeah, yep. t- tell me, how are things going up in Pennsylvania? God knows we've all been locked down, you know, pretty much throughout the country. I know our governor opened up things a, a little over a week or so ago, but how are things up in PA? Well, it's been rough. I will not lie. Um, you know, uh, although I am getting accustomed to being pretty lazy and, and sleeping on the couch and taking naps, it's been, uh, it's been interesting, but you know, we've, Totally closed down golf. We finally opened. Uh, we had a soft opening on May one, and so some people are starting to get back out. People are, people are ready. Um, it's you know I'm not a political guy, so I'm not going to get into it. But I, I think you know we've maybe overshot on this one a little bit with you know shutting the world down. But I'm not saying it's not a, a, a you know formidable COVID is a formidable uh, adversary here. But um, I think we went a little overboard on this one, but. That's just my take. <laughs> so, e, you know, now that uh, things are, you know, hopefully going to start loosening up a little bit and we can get out there and play golf again and, and get our swings going, I, I wanted to start tonight by getting a, a, a couple of thoughts from you. For those of us that may have gotten out there a little bit and then had to shut it down, or for those of us in the northern part of the country that never got out at all, how can we dust this, you know, get the dust off our golf swings and get back out there. What what are some recommendations you have that we can get things loosened up and play again? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I went out on, on May 1st, and we went to Catanning Country Club, and, and we played nine holes, and we walked. And, you know, I was a little gassed. I mean, I, I really was. I carried my own bag. And, you know, coming in the last nine holes, my 12-year-old son, Grady, was playing with us, and, and he, was, he was exhausted. And uh, so I had to carry his bag for the last couple holes, which – I wasn't ready for that. And, uh, you know, so when, you, when you're getting back out there, remember, kind of take it slow, um, you know, do some stretching. You know, we haven't, you know, most of us haven't swung a club in, in months. And, you know, unless you're lucky enough to have a, you know, net or something in the backyard, but take it slow, do a bunch of stretching, you know, uh, get out, but, but get out there and play. I mean, the, the social distancing, you know, you talk about social distancing. Where else on the planet, what other sport can you name where you don't, you know, I mean, I, I'm watching these guys play tennis and I'm like, well, wait a minute, they're touching the ball. So they're touching the ball and then they're throwing it up and then they touch the other guy. So that doesn't seem to make sense. And golf, you know, you're, you can be 30 feet from everybody the whole round. So, you know, I think it was I'm a little disgusted that we, we shut everything down. I trust me, it's a pandemic. I, I understand that, but. You know, I would take it slow, um, get out, but get out there and play. And and the most important thing is, you know, when you get back into playing, we've got to hit the golf ball solid again. You know, that's the most important thing. A lot of people argue it's curve, and 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 I don't think that at all. I think that's the the last thing you worry about. Number one is solid. I mean, think about it. if we're standing at TBC Sawgrass on number 17 and it's 140 yards, well. I don't think you're worried about how straight you're going to hit it. I think you're worried about how solid it is. And and that's the biggest thing. You know, when you're getting back into it, you know, stay in, stay in that posture a little bit longer, you know, stay a little more connected to the ground is my advice for that because I think that's how, you know, you see so much early extension and so many players, they're popping up and out of the shot and they don't hit it solid. So, you know, take it easy, get back into it, you know, hit some balls, stretch, you know, and just try to hit it solid. And, and and don't go out there, you know, I went out there, I was, uh, I'll tell you, Chris, I don't know if I've ever enjoyed 
playing golf more than I did the other night. I mean, we, we went out there. I, I never noticed the hills. I never noticed the, the trees. I, I mean, it was just great to be out. So enjoy the setting. Don't put too much pressure on yourself, but go enjoy it. Eric, you mentioned a couple of things there that I want to get into. And one of the things you talked about is staying connected to the ground. And mm -hmm. until video came around, and and very recently, I'll be honest with you, I mean, I was talking to Tom Patry last week, and we were talking about my golf swing. And as I videotaped myself, I noticed that I tend to, I, I sway him. My, my hips sway through the swing. And when I look at the best players, like I was looking at Dustin Johnson's swing today. Not that I, there's any way that I could ever hit it like Dustin Johnson, but you know, you start, start looking at, you know, what what do they do? And one of the things that I noticed that he and Rory and all the great players do is, you know, their hips turn. My hips, That's right. you know, slide from from right to left. How can you know, and staying connected to the ground and all that sort of thing? How can I stay connected to the ground and and develop a hip turn instead of a hip slide? Yeah, the, you know, the the funny part about a hip slide, the more the if you're a right-handed player and the more the right hip goes back where your spine tilts the wrong way, you know, it's balanced. It's, it's going to, you're going to tilt left and you're going to fall back all the time. Um, you know, that's a, that's a really tough position to be in, you know, and you, you've heard a lot of, you know, in our circles, you know, Chris, we yap about this all the time. Do you, do you turn, do you move off the ball? Do you, you know, do you stay stable and hold the hip? Well, I don't know that holding the hip, um, and I and I've taught it um, to some people. I don't know if holding the hip real steady and trying to do it all with the shoulders creates more uh, energy. I, you look at a lot of players that you know turn a lot. You know, I mean, look at look at Sam Snead, look at you know Hogan's, look at look at Arnold Palmer's. Look at how much you know those guys turn their hips a lot. And uh, you know, some people call that a little old school. I don't know that I agree with that. I just think that the freedom of, to, to, you know, we're not all, uh, you know, gymnasts, you know, we're, we're not flexible. So, you know, especially when we get older, you know, and I'll be 50 this year in November and I'm realizing that I can't do some of the things that I used to do. And I've got to let my left heel come off the ground a little bit. Got to get a little more hip turn to, you know, complete a backswing and, you know, completion of the backswing is, it, it, you know, is huge. And that was one of Mr. Nicholas's, you know, all time, swing thoughts he used to go back to is complete the backswing and you know you look at a lot of players they get nervous they get tight they get a little ball bound right hip kind of kicks back and they they don't really get behind the golf ball um and, and so i would say hip turn is a is a huge part of that you know if you're struggling with that you know put a range basket or you know a bag or something right next to your right hip your right-handed player and, and 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 learn to swing back and not you know bump into that bag if you put some sort of feedback in there i'm a big believer in feedback you know you you know you have a range basket you have your you know club you get one of those driveway stakes something there to give you some positive feedback and once you start realizing that you know that 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 kind of that hip slide that excessive hip slide we'll call it is is will go away and you mentioned tom patrick he's one of my all-time favorites what a what a what a doozy he is to talk to huh indeed yeah tom's fantastic Eric, you talked about Catanning Country Club. I know that uh, you've got some things now. You're a, an ambassador for that golf club. And, and when when you told me you were up at Catanning, I thought Catanning, Catanning. I know that city. Why do I know that city? Because good friend Gus Ferrat is from there. And um, is that right? Yeah. About, uh, 
your ambassador work uh, there and at the uh, the Pete Dye Club down in West Virginia. Yeah, so I I, I parted ways with uh, Nemecolon in January, and uh, you know, and then we got hit with the um, the shutdown, and so you know, I really haven't been doing much. But um, I was offered the job as director of golf at Pete Dye, which I turned down. I mean, I can't give it the time it needs. Um, but it is like, I want to say it's the 64th ranked course in the country. It's in the top 100. It's a fantastic place. Um, Randy Buzzo is the owner there and, and said, listen, would you come down and, and help us out? And I said, yeah, I would love to do that. You know, so I'm going to probably go down there a couple of days a week and, you know, could Tanning offered me the position of being a, you know, a golf ambassador for, for the club. And, um, you know, it's a, Katanning is a beautiful little nine hole golf course. And it reminds me there's some Oakmont in there and people say, wait a minute, hold on a second. What, what are you talking about? Well, Emil Loeffler was the superintendent at Oakmont, um, in the early days and he designed it. And, and it's, I, there's, it's a, reminds me of Titusville country club where I grew up. It was a nine hole golf course in Titusville, Pennsylvania. We two sets of tees. You thought you were playing two different holes. I mean, it was, but I, I did, laps around that place and i and i just i love it and i miss it so much and when i when they they, they said listen we we parted ways with our head professional and would you would you help us out would you come up and be an ambassador and you know do some clinics and be around at the member guests and things like that yeah i, w- I will do that you know and uh because i'm in that stage of my career where i can and uh you know i've i've busted it pretty hard for the last 25 years and now uh i'm on that where I can, you know, do what I want. And, uh, so I'm really looking forward to being there and the history of it. And I've got some great friends there, Cliff Forrest, Tony Klander and all those boys from Rosebud mining. And, and, uh, they're just great people and they, they just love to play golf. And that's, uh, so that's what we're going to do this summer. Yeah. When I was doing some research on that golf course, uh, you know, to your point about, you know, Emma Loeffler being the, uh, the, the, um, designer of that golf course and coming over from, uh, you know, superintendent at, at Oakmont and, uh, read a lot about the greens, undulating greens, very fast greens. Do you see, is that the, the similarity? Did he build a lot of those green complexes to be very similar to at least play like what you saw it over at Oakmont? Yeah. You know, after spending 17 years at Oakmont, you know, to go, you know, the first time I played Katanning, I, I kind of went and I, I said to the, the general manager, Greg, I said, Greg, this reminds me of Oakmont. And then, and he told me the story and I, and then, so I did some research too. And I, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, they, the, the fairways that, I mean, first of all, you got to walk up a, you know, I told Joe Ava, he, he, he was a grounds chairman. I said, Joe, you, you know, the fairways are 10 yards wide. I mean, you got to walk in a single file line up the fairway. You know, you can, what are you doing to me here? I can't, I can't hit a 30 yard <laughs> wide fairway, let alone 10. I said, we're going to take, you know, we, we didn't make this a little more generous off the tee and the greens are, are fabulous. They're fast. Um, they've got a lot of undulation where if you miss it, very, very similar to Oakmont. And, and he, he, he was accomplished his goal there. When you miss it in the wrong spot, you're making five or six real quick. Um, they're fast and they slope away from you. There's a lot of that, uh, down and, you know, back like number 12 that, at Oakmont where it slopes away from you. So you're hitting in and, and you've got to be really, really precise with your irons. And that's what, and I, you know, when I told Greg, the, the GM there, I said, wow, I, this is just it reminds me of Oakmont. And, I, and when I heard the story, I was, 
so intrigued by that. And Emil, he he did you know several other places, and they're they're all fabulous. You know, they've got that they've got that same kind of feel to it. So it's very, you know, it's not a long golf course by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and they have you know a couple different greens. So, you know, you play the one par three to a shorter one, and there's a bear that goes up the hill. It's two twenty five straight up the hill. It's a it's a full three wood. Uh, you know, almost any time of the year for me. And, uh, and it's, it's just, it's just a cool little golf course. So I can't, can't wait to spend some time there. We joined, we joined there and I'm, uh, going to join another club here in Pittsburgh and, uh, I'm going to work on my game a little bit. Cause I, like I said, I've been going so hard for the last 25 years that, you know, my wife and I are lucky. We're in a spot where we can kind of start, you know, slowing down a little bit and not killing myself so much. So Eric, when, when things do open back up and you're ready to start teaching again, what's the new normal going to be like? Because for an instructor, what I imagine you, you're working with your, your students, you know, there's a, there's a lot of hands on. There's a, hey, let me adjust your grip here. Hey, let me help you, you know, align, you know, your hips a little better. Let me align your shoulders and, and that sort of thing. Now with social distancing and all of that, what's the new normal going to be like for you teaching? Well... You know, I guess, or you know, I, I guess the best way I can say it, we just gotta dip our toes in the water and find out. You know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty hands-on, you know, person. I, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, it's changed. I mean, I remember when Jim Flick and Mike Malaska, and we, we spent so much time with Jim, and I mean, he'd physically grab your hip and he'd get down behind you and he'd be turning your hips, and I think, you know maybe we've overshot on the don't touch me. We've we kind of got a little like everyone's a little paranoid. So if I ever do touch anyone in a lesson, um, and if you watch George Gankus, he is, I mean, he's behind you. He's pulling your hips. He's, if you've ever watched the videos and, and I think that great instructors do that. Um, so you are there to learn an athletic uh, movement and, and you do need that feedback. So, you know, if I ever ask anyone, I say, hey, can I, do you mind if I grab your hip or your hand? And, you know, um, and again, I'm not downplaying this, this virus. I, I'm not. I, it's, it's awful. It's horrendous. I think we've overshot a little bit on this. When you look at the, the rate that, you know, the death rate and the amount of people in the United States of America, it's, it's very low. So I hope that we get back to a little bit of, you know, someone reached out to shake my hand today and I went, <gasps> I, I, I didn't know what to do. I mean, it was weird. Chris. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I, I didn't know what, and I, I was like, well, and I shook their hand and I grabbed some hand sanitizer and squirted my hands off like, and it was dripping off me at the, after we shook hands. But, um, <laughs> you know what I mean? It really was. I was like, ah, I didn't know what to do. Um, this nice, sweet old lady, and I don't know, kind of nice thing. Yeah, no. But I hope we get back to, to a little bit normal. And, and, and you know, we I don't think anybody knows, really. I mean, it, it's going to be a little different, but but I hope I hope we get back to some normalcy, and I hope that, you know, I don't know if the new fist pump or the elbow thing is, what, you know, I don't know. But, you know, I think if you're, you know, and you're, if you're in good health, it seems like we shouldn't worry quite as much. I mean, you look at stats, I mean, a lot of people that have, you know, come to this illness have had 
pre-existing conditions that were pretty bad. So we, we just don't know. I mean, I think, but I think everyone's probably going to be a little more, you know, a little further apart, but I'm still going to, you know, whether I have to wear gloves or whatever, and it's still, you still have to get people into the positions that they need to be in. They're paying you to do that. They're paying you to show them how to do that. And, and I don't think, I don't think verbal golf lessons where you're just going, okay, take your left hand, move it here. Do this, do that. I don't think those are good lessons. Right? And, and maybe that goes a little bit like that, but a lot of people need to have their hands put in a certain spot or have their hips in a certain spot. You know, who, who knows? I, I guess, I guess we'll just have to see, you know, I mean, I wish I had the answer, but I really don't. I mean, I'm, I'm glad to see that, you know, we're getting the match at Seminole. I mean, that's, I thought Mr. Mr. Ford sent me an email the other day, uh, two days ago, and he's all fired about that match with, you know, Dustin and, and uh, Rory and Ricky and, and Matt Wolf. I mean, it's going to be a, it's going to be awesome. You know, it's going to be awesome to see some live golf again. And I think, I think we all want to see it, you know, I mean, similar to football or hockey or, or any of these sports. We're like, what's going to happen? Well, we really don't know. But, but I hope that, you know, I hope that's not taken away from us forever. You know, I, re- I really do. I mean, I, there's nothing like, I mean, talk about the Masters, you know I mean? There's nothing yeah. like when you have been there and you've played the golf course and you've been there and you've been there in a tournament, when someone makes an eagle on a Sunday and you're there, it's, the roars are amazing. And I, I can't really imagine what it would be like to watch a golf tournament without hearing the roars and the excitement, you know? Because I think that's such a big part of, of sport, you know, whether it's the British Open or, you know, the Open Championship and U.S. Open or the PGA. I mean, there's that, when you're hearing the roars and you're hearing somebody come from behind and, 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 they're, and they're coming after you, you know, I mean, that changes your... You can have a shot about that too. I mean, you hear those roars and someone's flying up the leaderboard at you. There's that's some that's some tension, you know. There's means a little added, um, you know, feel to the game. So I hope that's not taken away from us forever. Yeah, let's you know just a couple more Eric, before I let you go. But I want to expound on that point because I was th- as I was thinking about the Masters in November. So yeah, everything's going to be different. And if we get to a yep. place where things never do fully open back up, we get, you know, a resurgence in the in the fall and the winter for, you know, the number of cases and that sort of thing. And we have a Masters with no patrons. What would that be like? I mean, to your point, you know, it's close on the back nine on Sunday, but you don't know. The players don't know what's going on behind them because there's no roars for the guy that makes eagle on 13 or on 15 there's none of that going on all you're going to be doing is scoreboard watching i i don't know it something says to me that it's that would be a really weird masters to just not hear any of the patrons in the background when you're watching the telecast well i mean think about 86 masters you know how loud it was there i mean i'm sure we've all watched it on the golf channel now 10 times i mean every time it's on i can't i can't get enough of it but the roars were maddening, and and he and he basically crumpled Seve. You know, I mean, Seve was, you know, to see that shot he hit on 15, and after Nicholas just stuck it on 16 and 17. I mean, you know, you can't tell me that didn't affect the play. Now, a runner felt when Rory says, 
Right. Well, hold on a minute. You know, I don't think I want to play in the Ryder Cup without Sam. And I go, yeah, because why? Well, and I want to say two things on that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with cheering for your for your country and your and your your your, your team. I think it's gotten a little out of control in some cases. I I think that we've maybe overshot really what this was about, you know, and I, you know, Patrick Reed and the Rory thing, and they were going haywire, you know, and that was fun to watch, and it, and it, but it was, it seemed amicable, you know, but I think when you get the rowdy fans and they get a little over the top, I think that's not a great thing. That's me personally. Uh, you know, listen, cheer your countrymen yeah. on all you want, but don't get over the top on it. You know what I mean? Just, it's a, it's a starting event to bring world of golf together, not separate. So let's not lose our let's not lose our vision on what that Ryder Cup and and golf in general is supposed to be. I you know, listen, I don't I'm not a huge fan of the oh, Before I let you go, for our listeners that want to stay up to date with you, take a look at all your great tips and instructional videos that you have. Um, how can they do so, whether it's online or it's on social media? Yeah, ericjohnsongolf.com is my website. You know, I'm a terrible uh, tweeter. I'm going to get on that. I've been saying that for a year now. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> But you can, look, you can look up that stuff on Facebook and, and all, the, all the archive stuff from golf magazine they've been they've been super to me and it's an honor to be one of their top 100 for the last 10 years and and uh you know it's just uh it's awesome so that's well eric i can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come here my friend it's always a lot of fun when you're a part of the segment uh hopefully you'll come back and join me again soon i'm already looking forward to number 17 buddy and thanks for everything you you know you're the most prepared guy i've ever met and, uh, you know, we're going to play some golf this summer. I'm going to hold your feet to the fire on this, okay? Whether it's staying a feet or whether it's down a tanning. We're doing it this year, okay? All right, my friend. I'm glad to do it, so All let's right, make buddy. it happen. All right. Thanks, Chris. See you, Eric. Bye-bye. That's the, uh, that's the great Eric Johnson. EricJohnsonGolf.com is his website, and it's a fantastic site. Uh, it needs a little updating, but outside of that, uh, so many great instructional videos on there, and you can check him out on YouTube as well. And it's E-R-I-C is, uh, is the spelling of his first name. So ericjohnsongolf.com and Eric Johnson on on uh, um, YouTube. Check him out there. And then Eric Johnson Golf at Eric Johnson Golf on Twitter and on social media as well. Look forward to catching up with Eric soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, Paul Levy, I want to give a shout out to our friends at the Ben Hogan Golf Company. When Ben Hogan founded his company in 1953, his mission was to make the finest golf equipment in the world. And uh, that remains the mission today, folks. They forge every club they provide with the absolute precision that you ask for. Now, when I say that, what I mean is you, you give them their, your specifications, whatever they are, and they're going to make those clubs to those exacting specifications down in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. You'll only find Ben Hogan Golf Equipment at BenHoganGolf.com. Visit them online and learn more about their great products 
and their great prices. Folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. All right, now back with me is former PGA president, uh, or PGA of America president, Paul Levy. Let me remind you about Paul's background. He's from New Orleans, played his college golf at LSU, became a member of the PGA back in 1986. From 1999 to 2004, he served as general manager and PGA director of golf at Royal Oaks Country Club in Houston. 2004, he moved to Southern California to oversee the development of Tuscana Country Club. 2007 to 2012, Paul was elected as an independent director on the Southern California PGA Board of Directors. He was recently the CEO and general manager of Toscana Country Club in Indian Wells, California. He's been the secretary, the vice president, and the president of the PGA of America, was named president during their centennial year of 2016. After serving a two-year term, he was named honorary president going forward. And I am very honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Paul, thanks for coming back on the show. Well, it's great to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. So, Paul, I, I wanted to start our time before we get into all the golf stuff. I got to get your thoughts on LSU. You still basking in the afterglow of the national championship? Yeah, you know, even after watching all of our players get drafted, which, you know, if you read uh, the reports, LSU's probably had more NFL players drafted the last 15 years than any school out there. I think Alabama's second to us. But it was a great year. I mean, I don't think a team will ever have a year like that. It's not just with Joe and the Heisman. You look at the, you know, Belitnikoff winner. You look at Jordan Jefferson. You look at every everyone that we had on that team. I mean, we, I think, had five of the national individual awards for the year besides going what uh, I can't remember 16 and 0 and Joe's you know Joe Burrow will anyone ever do what he did but uh, so that'll make us feel good for a few years but I'm sure LSU fans in four or five years will be looking for another one that's kind of how it is isn't it <laughs> indeed so you happy for Burrow going number one to Cincinnati you feel sorry for him you know I think I've asked some people, and some people think he's going to do really well. I mean, it's time Cincinnati does come back. They haven't had a good team since the 90s or, you know, really long-term good run. And uh, I think, he's, you know, he's a native kid. He's excited. You know, his dad has uh, been in football in that state for years, and I think he will do well, and I think he'll get him to the playoffs. And I think he will be as great a leader in the NFL as you saw that one year in college to prove it was not a fluke. Well, Paul, let's uh, let's talk a little golf, and I, I want to get your thoughts into what you think about what's going on you know, right now in the country, and then with the game of golf, we're sort of into a no, new normal now for you know what's going on on and off golf courses uh, thanks to uh, COVID nineteen. But I know you can't speak for the PGA of America, but I uh, wanted to get your thoughts. What do you think the new normal is going to be like when we go out and play golf? Well, you know, I, I will share with you, you know. Uh, Susie Whaley, who's the president now, who's my fellow officer, and Jim Richardson and John Lindert and Seth Law and John uh, Easterbrook, our chief membership officer, they've been helping lead the industry with the Get Back to Golf plan. So uh, I haven't been in those discussions, but John's actually, uh, what, do, what do we call it now? Um, basically quarantining ourselves or 
our stay-at-home right. orders. John's about five houses down from my house where we are in Arizona in the mountains. So I speak to him, and I know that the plan that worked real hard on, I think, was being released to the world today. It was released to our members Friday, and it's very comprehensive. And John told me that one of the things the CDC people said, and I think it's interesting that the PGA, along with the GCSA and everyone that did this uh, plan and worked on it, this was an industry uh, plan that uh, they actually got the CDC to sign off on it. And uh, you know, one of the comments that John had shared with me is that th when we say, when are we going to get back to normal, we might never get back to what we knew as normal. And, you know, some of the things are here for a while. I've played golf twice in the last 10 days, and the cup's upside down. Uh, you know, you, you feel like you got to hit the cup, hit the putt a lot easier than you might normally. There's no hitting the back of the cup. But it's great to be out playing golf. But, yeah, we're going we're gonna to deal with, uh, you know, when you go to our club, we used to reach in the box and grab tees. Now they have five tees in a plastic bag with a pencil, with a scorecard. Uh, you know, the bathroom detail is totally different. Those things are here to stay, and it's things that we got to do to keep everyone healthy and safe. But it's great to see people back playing golf. I, I think I read today that, over 80% of facilities are now back playing, which uh, we were at, what, 45% just a couple of weeks ago. What do you think about uh, what it's going to be like on the tour? Are we going to see fans at, at, at tournaments? Do you think uh, it, uh, everything that goes into a tournament, because it's not just the social distancing of, of fans as we you know walk around the golf course. I mean, as you sort of alluded to a moment ago, there's a lot to think about. There's restrooms, there's concession stands, there's the autograph sessions. What what do you think the new normal is going to be like on the tour? Well, you know, I, I, I think golf's got a chance to get back quicker than other sports because you're not like playing basketball or football where everyone's sweating on each other. But, yeah, we're not going to see fans, it sounds like, for a while. I mean, I, I'm not part of any discussions to that level. I read everything every day. You know, I speak to my friends, I speak to some of the officers, and, uh, you know, you see what Jay's saying, and, you know, they're talking about playing without fans to start. Um, you know, they've talked about, you know, could there be major championships without fans? Uh, you know, like you talk about Augusta, how can you – Augusta won't be the same. You know, I've got to go the last seven years and be a rules official as part of my duties being an officer, and I just don't see Augusta without fans. Uh, but we have to accept this new normal. I think – as the tour progresses, hopefully they'll get back to where fans are part of the process. And let's face it, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if this virus is going to die out. I mean, we don't know. I mean, if you watch TV every day and depending on what channel you watch, you wonder if these people are reporting the same world. It's so to, to your point, of, yeah. And to your point about a, a patronless masters not being the same, you know, Eric Johnson and I in the last segment we were talking about that, and we we're also talking about a Ryder Cup with no uh, with no fans. Could could we see a Ryder Cup uh, a fanless Ryder Cup, or do you think that uh, you know the tour may come up with some other ideas for how they want to handle that? Well, obviously the Ryder Cup's not a tour decision. Remember, that's a PGA of America decision. The Ryder Cup is owned in America, our fifty percent by the PGA of America wholly, although. You know, we have a great relationship with the tour. I mean, Seth Waugh, our CEO, and Jay Monahan. In fact, Seth gave Jay, Jay his first job in golf running Deutsche Bank years ago. They're very, they get along great. They have a great relationship. We get along better with the tour. 
than we ever have in my 35 years as a PGA member. But that decision for the Ryder Cup will be up to the PGA of America. And then across the pond, you know, you have uh, Ryder Cup Europe. Um, you know, that's, uh, it's going to be a tough decision. Would I like to see a Ryder Cup without fans? Heck no. I mean, I, I've not missed a Ryder Cup since 97. I've been to every Ryder Cup uh, since, uh, since 99. Uh, of course, the famous one, the Brookline. But, you know, I'm not going to say anything as far as whether I think we will or we won't. There's a lot of factors that go in, as you know. I mean, you look at the British Open and when, the, when they decided not to play the Open, and I know the, the insurance uh, that some of these associations have on these events, well, it's big business. I mean, you know, you lose a major championship, the TV dollars that go with it. I know how important that is to our PGA of America members because we use all of the money that comes in off of our championships. It's what drives our day-to-day program. It drives, you know, things like PGA Junior League Golf. It drives what we do in PGA Reach. It drives the day-to-day education for our members who are the working men and women out there at the green grass level giving golf lessons like Eric and running golf facilities. Um, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. I'm hoping somehow, some way, we'll be in Wisconsin come December with some kind of fans. Um, we'll just see. I, I really can't give you an opinion whether it'll happen or not. There's just so many moving parts, and I wouldn't want to speak out of turn for my officers for the PGA, who really, that's their position to speak for the association. But in my heart, I want to see fans, and I want to see a writer come September. It's the greatest golf event in the world. Agreed. So, I mean, and one of the things you just mentioned is the sort of the financial impact and the trickle down of all of that. Talk about it. There's two things from a financial standpoint I want to get into. First of all is that. What is the financial impact that is going to be felt, uh, the ripple effect of all of this? And then on the opposite side of that, you guys do such great work from, from a charitable perspective, raising money and doing work that way. Talk about uh, the dollars that uh, go along with that and, and the great work that the PGA of America does giving back. Well, you know, you look at PGA Reach, which is really something that we branded. Uh, I was very fortunate. When I became secretary, I was elected at our annual meeting in November 2012 um, in Baltimore. And Pete Vakwa was given the position, was hired as our, as our uh, CEO. So my first day as an officer was Pete's first day as CEO. So uh, Pete did a great job for us. You know, Seth, of course, is doing a great job today. And you look at what we've done with PGA Reach, with PGA Hope, Help Our Patriots Everywhere, with PGA Junior League Golf, with PGA, um, everything that we're doing in the charitable space. It takes dollars to do that. And, yeah, you look at the PGA Championship and the Ryder Cup, and those two major events are greatly responsible for driving the day-to-day funds that we have to run the association. So uh, you look at the trickle-down effect, not just for the PGA of America, but, you know, the RNA for the Open, uh, even the Masters. They're huge numbers. You know, not just the TV dollars. How about how much money is driven to the economy? I haven't seen a number in a while. The last one I remember is the PGA Championship, depending on the market, whether it's Rochester, a small market, whether you're going to Atlanta or whether you're going to St. Louis, it could be in the 80 to maybe 120 million range. And I'm guessing. I could be off, but I think I'm close. And of course, that was a few years back. A Ryder Cup is much bigger than that. So forget our association, the game of golf, our members and the kids and growing this game. 
Think about what doesn't happen in that local community when you have a major championship. It's like losing a Super Bowl. So let's go the opposite route. Talk about historically the amount of money that the PGA of America has given to charities across the world, across the country, and talk about the impact that that's had and some of the programs that have you know, come out of the dollars that have been given back and reinvested into the game. Well, you know, the first thing I always like to say, and we did a study, I want to say it was my first year as president, about how much money, and of course, you know, the PGA is great, is that they prepare us for speaking events and engagements. You always have kind of the current numbers. So I don't want to spout any numbers off my head because I haven't seen any in a while. But the billions of dollars that are raised just from the game of golf. So that's not necessarily, let's say, a PGA championship or a, uh, you know, a New Orleans Open or, or a uh, whatever tour event, the AT&T, the money in the locale. It's my good friend Casey Brozak, who I spoke to today, who's the director of golf at a club in Naples. It's the two or three events they do at his club for charity that maybe raise 100 grand or 50 grand. You multiply all of those events for the game of golf, of which most of those facilities are led by a PGA professional. And you look at the dollars that go into charity. So it's not just the game. A lot of times those dollars are going to the local cancer society or to the halfway house to, for people that are trying to turn their life around and all of the impact of all of that. You know, we're not having any of that money right now. But on the other hand, as far as tying it back to your question, the dollars that not just the PGA of America, the game of golf have given to charity. I don't think there's a sport that can compete, and I think that's documented, that does more for the good of the community, and not just the game of golf, but just for people in general. So, yeah, that's all going to take a hit. It's unfortunate. and uh, But I really have faith. You know, I'm bullish in America. I'm one of those guys that I believe in America. I think that I believe in our stock market. I, I believe in our economy. I believe in I believe in our government, and I think that we're going to come back stronger than ever, and I think we'll get through this, and, uh, you know, it, right now it's hard. Paul, talk about the other great things that you're involved with now. I know you're doing some other great work. Uh, update us on uh, what you're doing and what you're getting involved with now that you're uh, away from the PGA of America. Well, you know, I obviously I, I worked for, uh, let's see, I worked in a golf shop. We're at a greengrass facility and running clubs, you know, being a director of golf, a general manager. Uh, then with Sunrise, I always was the GM and CEO of one of our clubs and then also was the president of our hospitality and golf division overseeing our properties in the Southwest. So I did that for like 35 years. And then uh, when I became president of the PGA, uh, it was time for me to leave Sunrise. We, we had developed, I think, eight properties from scratch in my time that I was a part of. And then we would we would turn the clubs over to the members or sell them to a third party. So uh, when I was vice president, we were down to just one facility, Toscana. And, uh, you know, the gentleman I worked for, we weren't doing new projects. And so it was time for me to enjoy being president. And I really wanted to do something else. I, I'm an entrepreneur at spirit and at heart. You know, it's like any of the great teaching pros. They're, they're entrepreneurs. They're out there selling themselves, giving service to the great people who love to play this game. They learn to promote themselves. They're great marketers. But more importantly, they're people who love to get up every day and do what they love to do. So for me, I'm involved in some entrepreneurial businesses that are new for me. One of them is really exciting. It's called Vi. It's basically uh, in the sports philanthropy world. We hope to be the Uber. So what Uber was in transportation in the sports philanthropy world, where we can take normal fundraising events that 
would raise linear dollars, so to speak. You know, you you have a campaign where, you know, if, if people do GoFundMe. You go to a GoFundMe page and you donate a dollar. We've created a platform and a software and actually are right now in the process of getting the patent where we can uniquely take that $1 and let's just say turn it into a higher multiple of that than you would get in a linear fundraising operation. So it's very exciting, very centered around golf. We intend to have a World Charity Golf Championship with it. It's, a, it's an organization that I'm a part owner in and I'm very excited. And then I'm also involved in a couple other entrepreneurial opportunities. You know, I've, I'll be 60 this year, so I'm not getting any younger. And, uh, you know, my wife and I just bought a house in the mountains, and we kind of want to live where we want to live, and it's that time of my life to enjoy it. So, Paul, for all of our listeners that want to stay up to date with Vi, and it's uh, V as in Victor, I-E, so Vi, they want to stay up to date with that and uh, some of the other things you're doing. Is there a way that we can do that, whether it's uh, online or on social media? You know, obviously, anyone can reach out to me through email. My email is still my PGA email, Levy, L-E-V-Y, at PGAHQ.com. With the, the other businesses I have, one of them is, uh, is uh, if you're familiar with Boardroom Magazine in the club industry, John Fanaro is the editor and owner, and uh, they have Distinguished Clubs of America. We're creating distinguished golf destinations so that we're uh, qualifying and certifying the top resorts and daily fee golf courses in America. So I use my one PJ email for everything. Um, social media-wise, I guess I'm not as much of a social media buff as uh, maybe that younger generation below me, but uh, love to hear from anyone. If I can help somebody, buy. people are going to hear about it soon. We, we don't have a strong website presence right now. We, we're right now getting the patent pending, and we're hoping that in the next two weeks we're going to be ready to rock and roll, and we hope that millions of not just Americans but millions of people around the world understand that We've created a business at the end of the day, does one great thing, raises money for people who need help. That's fantastic. Paul, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show. Always enjoy spending time with you. I hope uh, when everything starts well, to get up and running, you'll come back and share some more of that information with us. Well, you and en you enjoy Hotlanta there. I think. Is that where you are in Atlanta? That's right. Well, get you some golf in. I know that we've got golf courses open up, and I look forward to being back on. And to all your listeners out there, just try to get back on the golf course and play a little golf. There you go. Paul, take care. Stay safe. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up soon. Thank you, Chris. See you, Paul. That's a great Paul Levy. L-E-V-Y is uh, the spelling of his last name. And the company, again, is Vi, V as in victory, I-E. So let's keep our eyes on uh, Google on that. And then uh, as he gets things going and uh, helping people out, which is fantastic, obviously, want to get him back on the show and update us for how things are going and then how the rest of us can uh, potentially get involved and help out as well. Paul's fantastic. Look forward to catching up with him soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, Sean McKeel, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Positive Vibes Golf. You can find them online at PositiveVibesGolf.com and on Twitter at PVibesGolf. Folks, as I've said to you many, many times, their head covers and putter covers are a unique way to keep your mind focused on positive thoughts when you're out on the golf course, right? They're a great training aid because they help you stay positive by putting positive images in your mind. Every time you walk back to your golf bag and you put your head cover on, or you put your putter cover on, it's going to put a smile on your face. 
DY I say that by going online to positivevibesgolf.com and give them a follow on Twitter again at T Vibes Golf. All right, now back with me is a guy who's been a big part of this show over the years, and that's 2003 PGA champion Sean McKeel. As you guys have heard me say a number of times on this show and on social media, Sean, to me, is by far the most underrated player that's played on the PGA Tour, probably going back a couple of decades. On top of Sean's major championship victory, he finished second in the 2006 PGA Championship, finishing runner-up uh, behind Tiger Woods that year at Medina. Also finished second place at the 2006 World Match Play Championship after defeating Tiger Woods in the first round four and three. So, so far over the course of his career, he's had 20 top 10 finishes, 57 top 25. He's the only player to ever record a double eagle in the U.S. Open when he did it at the 2010 PGA, I mean, U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. And I'm very glad he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Sean, how are you, my friend? Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? How are things out in Memphis? Well, it's pretty quiet, really. He, uh, you know, things are maybe starting to open back up here in Tennessee a little bit. And uh, I think people are starting to dip their toes in the water a little bit. We'll see kind of where that leads. But, uh, you know, really, it's been, I mean, for everybody, I guess it's been a tough, probably nearly two months now. Um, so it's just, uh, I've been fortunate that my golf course at home uh, here in Tennessee in Memphis um has been open you know with certain restrictions i think the health departments pay to pay to visit a few times to kind of make sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing but uh you know my kids are going to school via zoom and learning a lot more about technology than i ever thought i would (laughs) yes indeed haven't we all zoom has been a big thing goodness knows they've had a boom um Talk about you and your preparation. Are we, uh, we going to see you out on the Champions Tour when things uh, start to get back to normal? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I played last well, the last event that the Champions Tour had, which was in Newport Beach, I, uh, I qualified for. And I uh, uh, actually played okay. Um, but, uh, you know, not being an exempt player, um, you know, it really comes down to, you know, getting a few invites if I can. Uh, there's a few majors that I get into, although, you know, we've lost the, uh, we've lost the senior PGA this year, which was to be at Benton Harbor, um, lost the U.S. senior open, uh, which was up in Rhode Island. So uh, there've been a few events kind of scratched from the schedule. So, um, you know, I'm only hearing that, uh, the champions tour is going to restart at the, the last week of July with the ally challenge there in uh, Flint, Michigan. Um, you know, hopefully I'd love to have a chance to play up there. If not, I guess I'll try to qualify. Then the following week will be the PGA. So at, at Harding Park, uh, provided that it's, um, uh, either still on or still at that site. So, um, you know, really kind of just practicing every day and, and, uh, you know, to think about it, really have almost not quite three months really before another event for me. Um, you know, so, you know, a lot of balls in the air, like everybody. I mean, we're all kind of wondering what's going on, you know, what, uh, you know, what's the next uh, ball to drop. Um, I think we're all, uh, well, I guess I should speak for myself. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing some good news and that's for everybody to kind of get back to work and, and doing the things that they love doing, you know, obviously safely, but, um, uh, yeah, so I'm just, I'm just kind of anxiously awaiting, uh, the next few months, but, uh, I really feel for like the, the people in the Olympics. And I think that's, uh, it's tough, you know, you, you work, work so hard to uh to get your body in shape and then and kind of have that be uh taken away from you then have to look 
another year, year and a half out, uh, it's difficult, I think, preparing for things that are so far into the future. But, but uh, you know, they always just say kind of take it one day at a time, and that, that's, uh, I think that holds, holds true right now. And, Sean, uh, to your point a moment ago about uh, when I look back at the Hoke Classic, uh, finished tied for 31st there, nice final round of 68. But um, you had shared a, a video. You, you went through Monday qualifying at Goose Creek Golf Club. Yeah. And uh, you were a few feet away, it seems like, from a raging fire that took place uh, and cut that uh, qualifying tournament uh, short. What was that like? Well, I, I, you know, as I said, you know, probably I think we teed off pretty early, but it was uh, somewhere around the fifth or sixth hole, seventh hole, something like that. There was a just a little, kind of just a small column of brown smoke. I didn't really appear to be much. You just happened to see it in the distance, and then we made our way around, and and we saw this helicopter starting to fly back and forth. That column of smoke, a brown smoke, turned into quick, you know, heavy black smoke within, you know didn't seem like very long and that was what really kind of struck me was how quickly these fires um really how quickly they can they can grow and they can spread and we kind of found that we were probably like i could feel the heat i think i was on the 13th tee box um and i would say it was probably within 75 to maybe 100 yards of where we were standing and and you could feel the heat the helicopter uh, really was overwhelmed it was just one one helicopter flying around and that quickly became two um they had to pull us off the course for the fire marshal uh went back to the clubhouse and um you know we were getting little bits of information by the on-site uh champions tour uh rules official everybody was kind of like well what are we going to do and originally we thought that the plan was that the next high the next four players um you know, and they went through a scenario of like, okay, what were you on the Charles Schwab Cup? What you know, your career money wins list type of thing. So pretty much had four players in mind. I went back to my hotel, kind of dejected, thinking that, uh, you know, that's the way that it was going to be, and and maybe that's without giving too much consideration that that's the way it should have been. Uh, I quickly found out too when once I got back to my hotel room that I uh, uh, they were really going to try to focus on the competition, and because everybody had played at least nine holes on either side. They just decided to take the two best scores off the front nine and then two, two, the two best scores off the back nine. And so uh, I was three under on, on my side. So I, I, I guess I won the qualifier, I guess, if you want to say it that way. Um, it was me and, and Dave Moreland who actually finished top three or two or three at the event. So he did well. Um, so there were four of us, and that's how they picked. They took the two best scores off the front, and the two best scores off the back nine, and and that's how it how it kind of went. So we played the event, and I flew home on the ninth of uh, of March, and then uh, so that was the last bit of competition I've had. So talk about that, right? Because as I was looking over how you uh, how you were playing and going back into into last year, and then uh, early parts of this year, it seems like you you were making really good progress with your game. It was really rounding into shape and. Like I say, you know, had a nice finishing round at the uh, at the Hoga uh, Classic. Um, talk about how you feel. How 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 do you feel like your game is progressing? Well, I mean, there was there were a lot of things kind of going on in my life away from the course. I, I can't really get into that. Uh, maybe that'll that'll maybe I'll be able to speak to that later. But uh, just a lot of stuff going on. Uh, really, it started about July, and 
but it's uh, it's probably something I shouldn't have even just mentioned, but it, it it really affected me. And anyway, so I didn't do too well at Q school, and and, um, and which I was really hoping to to, to play well, but um, just kind of came into the year just thinking, okay, well I'm gonna have to do the Monday qualifiers again, and maybe get a few exemptions and, and things like that. But um, I just uh, you know I was going down to play the Lost Street Pro Am. I don't even know what it was. I saw something on TV or Golf Channel or something, and it was talking. It was a. It was just a. It was talking about the grip. I made a change in my golf grip uh, the day before I left to go play in the Lost Street Pro Am, which is down in, in Palm Beach. And uh, I said, "Oh, what the heck? I'm going to try." I went out there and hit a few balls. I think I made seven birdies. Um, so really, my game was starting to come around, and I really just just accidental find um you know really had kind of kind of had me trending in the right direction so i took that to tucson to to try the monday qualifier and uh i three-putted the last hole to fall back into a playoff and then a six for one playoff and didn't make it and i really had no intention of going back out to uh california just like i would want to turn around and go all the way back there for i'll just wait and then and then play the event in mississippi and i just felt like I was playing too well. I thought, why not? And so I did that. And I went back out, and I was three under on the front and, and obviously got through, you know, like I just said. But uh, my game is a lot better. My attitude seems to be – of course, my attitude has always kind of been tied to uh, the way I've played. And maybe that's how most players are. And I think to my detriment, that's that's unfortunately the, kind of what I had fallen into throughout a good – I would say a good portion of my career. Um, and it's just it's just one of the things I wish I could I could do have a do over you know I wish I could have a mulligan, but you know I I just like I said I just found this little grip change and, and I go out every day and you know, Lauren Roberts and I are playing I'm making six seven birdies a day and so it's just a matter I think of of getting back uh, you know playing more competition I did feel a little bit of uh, the nerves at the Hogue because I hadn't played a tournament in so long and uh, I felt like I was playing well and and uh, just I just needed a few more starts and. Um, you know, hopefully I'll get those, but it's going to be, it's going to be a little bit of time, but I've just been practicing my short game and those types of things, trying to keep that tidy. But my game is, uh, it feels it's in a much better place than it has been in a long time. And, um, uh, uh, so I'm, I'm kind of anxious uh, to kind of get back and, and uh, get a few more turns under my belt. I think put a little bit more pressure. Um, so maybe see if I can handle the pressure a little bit better than I did at Newport because Newport, I played great. I really did. I mean, my scores didn't really reflect that. I think it was three or four under or something for the week. And I was five under going the last day with a couple of holes to go and, and shot three under. So I was a little bit disappointed. But uh, I really feel like my game is in the right place. I'm, I'm comfortable again over the ball. And, you know, my game was always predicated upon, you know, kind of the, the ball striking aspect of it. And over the last few years, I've really worked hard on my putting. And it's shown. I've made a lot more birdies. Um, I just need to. I just needed to kind of tidy up some of the things that I was always pretty good at, and uh, this little grip change. Uh, I mean, it seems it's just night and day the way I was hitting the ball from last year. So talk about that, right? Um, what change did you make in your grip, and how did you come? How did you come upon deciding to make whatever that change was? Well, you know, I think back to what my coach said in college. And my coach my last two years was Sam Carmichael. And Sam played the tour from 62 to 69. And 
he left the tour because he, he got hepatitis. And so um, when he took over, uh, you know, my whole demeanor changed as a player. I mean, even up to that point, I thought I was going to be an airline pilot, my dad, FedEx. And he really encouraged me to go on, to, you know, to be a professional golfer. But while we were there, we always focused on the fundamentals. And I know that it kind of gets blown out of proportion sometimes that people think, oh, why do I need to work on that? Why do I need to work, you know, on that? Whether that's your grip or your alignment or your stance, those things, they all matter. And there's not necessarily a perfect grip or a perfect alignment because everybody sees the ball differently on the ground. And so that affects the way you line up. Um, but the grip is really the one thing that, it's, it, as Arnold Palmer used to say, it's the one thing that connects you to the club. To the, you know, to the club. I mean, you know, you've got to have a good foundation of the grip. And when your grip is right, you know, that club face just it, it repeats. It just, and so I saw something about weakening the grip. So I went back and started going through a lot of my videos from, and pictures and stuff that I had from years and years ago just to look at my right-hand grip placement. Because I will tell you that a player working on his grip, it's, it's a lot easier to strengthen your grip than it is to weaken your grip. And so what needed, what needed really a left-hand grip change, I had to think about my right hand. And um, my right hand was just getting a little, bit, a little bit strong. And I started looking at some of my videos. And I was like, you know, it does look like, you know, club face is a little shut going back. And that could be, that could be a couple of different things. But by weakening my right hand, it allowed me to weaken my left without really focusing on it because it's a horrible feeling to to weaken your grip. And I just felt like I needed to do it. And so, I, and when I went out there and, you know, I was taking shallow divots again, um, I was sitting in the center of the club face. And those types of things, uh, when you're hitting the ball solidly, um, golf gets to be pretty easy. You start hitting a few wayward shots. As long as they're solid, you can fix that. If, if when you're hitting it offline and miss hitting it, that it really takes a lot of time to, to, to kind of figure out. But like I said, it was just an accident. I just saw something uh, <clears throat> about the grip and about the right hand grip and how, how the right hand, you know, kind of controlling what's well, really the power hand, but the left hand really controlling the face. And so I needed to fix the left hand, but I focused, but by focusing on the right hand, it allowed me to not worry so much about the, the kind of the weak feeling that I had in my left. And I basically started two or three days. I just weakened my, weakened my grip, and all I did was chip, and I hit little 30, 40-yard shots. That's all I did for two or three days. And eventually I got to where I could hit, you know, I could hit draws with a weaker left hand, and I knew that I was on to something. So there I just kind of, you know, started linking out my practice, you know, to, to longer clubs, and, and it didn't take long to kind of move from, from the wedges into the driver. So it's uh, – it's been with me now for about three, three and a half months. So, Sean, do you think it, that uh, your grip changed just because jumping back in, maybe you got into a, a, another habit? Or do you think that it was something that uh, came out of, we talked uh, on, the, you, you and I have talked about this on the show before, about the injuries you've had and the shoulder and all that sort of stuff. When do you think it, it developed and, uh, and uh, you know, how, how hard is it? Because that's one of the things that uh, with my game, Tom Patrick has been telling me, "Hey, you got to change your grip, man. You got your your right hand is too strong. You got to get that back on top. You got to get your left hand here, and it does. Yeah. It feels weird right now. It does. It does. <clears throat> but I, I would say that you know it's hard to say where where I really started to go wrong. I I always had a tendency as a younger player, my grip would get a little bit too weak. So then I started going the other way, and whether it was the shoulder, I don't know. It felt like I needed more power and a and a, and a strong grip." does feel more powerful 
Um, but you have to be able to release your body. And I'm not a body releaser. I don't rotate like, uh, say, a David Duvall or somebody that really rotates. I'm more of kind of a – my hips aren't that open at impact. Some of the things that I worked with uh, Larry Rinker on, we were talking about a few things. And, and uh, so I, did, I didn't change my grip because of that. I, just, I changed my grip because I didn't like some of the things uh, that I saw in my takeaway, uh, and particularly the, the shut club face at halfway back, it was darn near pointing straight down. Now, it wasn't at the top, but what would happen is I would go from a very strong halfway back to a very open halfway down. And so those the face didn't really match up too well. And I had a lot of face rotation because I went from closed to open, trying to get everything closed again, that I just had so much inconsistency with the strike. Um, you know, the, you know, the right hand really, if you look at like Ben Hogan, I was kind of, and they were talking, the person I was kind of watching was they were talking about having this trigger finger in your right finger. And my finger was too far underneath. And so I basically just put the V, what I would, you know, for anybody that's listening out there, you picture the V of your hand, maybe get it pointing at your right, at your right chin. The one good thing about your right, your wrist, is your wrist rotate independently really of your forearm and your upper arm. So you can, you can still, you can still kind of tuck your right arm in, you know, to keep your shoulder square and just turn your, turn your hand over and it doesn't really feel awkward. And so again, weakening the left hand, if that's something that people are wanting or are being told to do, make sure you also weaken your right hand. And I think that it, it basically makes your hand just feel like it's right on top of the club. And I promise you, you know, it, 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 it'll, it'll straighten you out. My ball is going, it goes dead straight. And that's how I used to play. My ball always went straight, and I've, I've kind of found that again. And, and plus, uh, you know, I found the, the, the consistency of the strike, the consistency of the divots, the direction of the divots, it all seems to be matching up for, uh, you know, for the way I swing the club. Sean, just changing gears a little bit, a couple of questions and some of this stuff we've talked about in the past, but uh, for our listeners tuning in for the first time and hearing our conversation, one of the things that um, – Going back to your 2003 PGA Championship, when uh, on the last hole on your Magic 7 iron and the great shot that you hit, I think, you know, when you look at the video and the crowd goes wild and all that sort of thing, I think what people probably don't realize is because of the undulation of the fairway and the green, you really never saw that shot land and where it ended up until you got all the way up on top of the green. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's true. That is true. There's actually uh, about three or four weeks ago, or there was a, a tweet put out by the PGA uh, championship and it was somebody had asked a question um, and it really kind of went back to my shot. You know, what it was something like name, a name, a great shot in final round history or something like that. And so they used mine for this particular um, story and they had a video uh, has me hitting the shot. And then, you know, Jim Nance is doing, providing his live commentary. <clears throat> and then there was a camera that was behind me. And I look over at the camera and in this video, you can probably pull it up on YouTube. Um, and, it, and you can read my lips. And I say, how close is that ball? Where, I, I think I said the first thing was, where's that ball? Or how close is that ball? I asked him twice. And I didn't get a response either time. So I did not know how close the ball was. I think just, you know, just being there, uh, you know, I could see that the ball was kind of online. But I couldn't really get a gauge of where it was in relation to the front of the green. And so I, I thought maybe, well, is that short? Is it, is it long? I mean, I knew it was a pretty good shot just from the, from the way the crowd 
<clears throat> kind of responded. Um, but it was uh, really it wasn't until I got up to the to the to the hole, or, you know, to the top of the hill there to uh, to see that it was like three inches away. I, I didn't I didn't really anticipate that. But, uh, um, you know, again, as I said, it was just a it was an absolute perfect distance. Uh, it, it really was and uh, really required no thought on my part other than just grabbing the club out of the bag and, and getting it over with as quickly as I could. That's pretty much what I did. I didn't take a whole lot of time. Um, you know, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember that like it was yesterday standing back there and, and looking over at the cameraman and just, just picking him out and asking him, I said, where's that ball? And I got nothing. <laughs> and, and it's interesting. You mentioned it's a perfect distance. And I had Hal Sutton on the show a few weeks ago and we were talking about his, a couple of his shots and, the and the PGA championship that he won in 83 and then the, the players championship against Tiger in 2000. And he said, and that's essentially what he said as well is, you know, those clubs, those shots that I hit were just the perfect distance for, you know, one, one of the irons with five iron and in 83, six iron in 2000. But, but it's still, you got to pull the shot off, whether it's the perfect distance or not, you still got the pressure of the situation. How do you deal with that? Like, you know, even though you know the distance, how do you deal with the pressure? Well, I mean, well, certainly in my case, and Hal's also, because I remember that shot at, at, at that Players' Championship, too. And, and uh, you know, he had his famous saying, be the right club today. And so um, I think you just draw back on, uh, you know, the experiences that you've been having, having that particular tournament. I mean, you can look back at some of the great shots that you hit uh, in your lifetime and, and, and that may, that may help you, but it's really kind of how you were feeling at the time. And I've been hitting the ball pretty well. That entire week was just a, was just magical in terms of ball striking. I mean, I really had good control of, you know, my distance and, and, and everything. And again, the consistency of the strike. I mean, I was, I was hitting the ball so solidly that everything was going the right distance. And so was it, um, I really went back to, Tuesday's practice round when I when I got up to that ball on Sunday because I had the same yardage from Chad's side of the fairway on Tuesday. It's in the practice round. The pin was about the same distance onto the green. It was more in the middle of the green though, and um, there's a little bit of wind in my face, and the ball came up right on the front fringe. And so when I got up to the shot on Sunday, Bob, I asked Bob, I said, "This is the same. This is the same exact shot we had on Tuesday," and he said, "Yep." And so I grabbed a seven and I had like one, you know, 161 and 13. Um, and I had no, I had no problem. I mean, the first thing you do is you take stock of, okay, where are you in the tournament? What's up there around the green? What kind of lie do I have? You know, the pin, you know, the pin was eight or nine from the left. It was 13 on. There were 30 yards to the right of the pin. There was no undulations. There was nothing really that I had to worry about. There was no water. It was just about getting it onto the green. And so I didn't have to think about all of those things that take away from kind of your preparation. I mean, the things that I just mentioned about no water, I mean, those things went through my mind in about one second. And then the rest of it was just about taking stock of the lie and, and just making sure you pick the right club, make sure you got your math right, and those types of simple things. But the simple things are sometimes the things that trip you up. And it just, it, it just, I don't know, it just came off. Um, you know, it was a, it was a great golf swing, but, but again, you just have to kind of dig deep, take a few deep breaths and recognize the situation and know that you, 
you know, that you've done it before and it's just another shot really. Um, I, it was a very meaningful shot, of course. Um, you know, now had I had a two shot lead or had I, had I been tied, who knows where I would have hit it? Um, you know, we'll never know that, but, uh, um, it's just as a matter of just kind of staying in the moment, I think. And it is okay to kind of drift away and, and look back at some past experiences, you know, if you feel like you need to do that, but you can't really, um, I had never been in a situation quite like that. So I didn't have anything really to compare it to. So it was just a matter of kind of going through those pre-shot, the pre-shot routine. I think that, that I, that I really had for myself that week and, and, uh, and just trying and, and just execution, I guess. And as you mentioned, you know, it might've been different if you were tied or, you know, a different situation. Um, how do you keep negative thoughts from coming into your mind? Because as I look back at that tournament, I went through the scorecards, you know, for you and Chad and, and you're coming off of 17 and you bogeyed 17. So now you went from a two stroke lead to a one stroke lead. And a lot of guys, you know, and I just speak for myself, you know, even when I'm just playing with my buddies and, uh, you know, for bragging rights or a NASA or whatever, and, um, you, you, you know, I make those sorts of mistakes. All of a sudden the negative thought starts to creep into your head. Like, Oh, I just gave that away. And now if I bogey this hole and then, you know, if he happens to birdie, then I could lose and all those sort of, how do you block that stuff out? Well, I mean, those are the things that happen. I mean, I think that when you play a, a that, that's really why I think I felt so much at ease really going into the last round because it was a golf course that was, well, it was extremely difficult. It was, it was unbelievably hot. So you were tested physically. Um, fairways were narrow. The rough was basically chip out rough. So I didn't really, really have any worry about, about someone coming, you know, coming from way behind. As long as I just kind of could manage myself um, and avoid the big number, I felt like I was going to be fine. And that held true for the most part. I got to 15. Uh, the green uh, has since been changed. But, but Chad and I both hit on the left side of the green, and it was a really 10, 12-foot breaking putt. Well, I, I mean, I three-putted. I left my putt about six feet short. It broke way right and came up short six, seven feet. And Chad made the putt. I went from a three-shot lead to a one shot lead on one green and uh you know then birdied the next hole and then, like i said my, my bogey on 17 was a result because i drove the ball too far through the fairway and i was a foot out of the first cut and i was in the deep rub i had no choice so what i didn't feel like i i didn't feel like i you know kind of let myself down i hit a i hit what i thought was a great drive uh chad hit a, hit a, hit a great one right down the middle of the fairway on 17 so he was kind of in the driver's seat there but from there it was just about managing you know where i was in the tournament and then um i will say though that i was nervous on 18t because i had i had missed the fairway on 16 to the right i had or excuse yeah 16 to the right and i and i got very fortunate with having a short club into the green and then i missed the green i missed the fairway on 17 so now chad gets up and he hits the fairway and and i'm like i have to hit this fairway because otherwise i'm i'm chipping out and this could be a playoff so the pressure i felt really was was uh was on the tee ball and not so much really um the the fact that i'd made a bogey or two because i'd been making those all week i mean everybody was i mean you just could not play that golf course uh, without you know finding finding a bit of trouble somewhere it was just about managing your you know the the big mistakes i mean sometimes bogeys bogeys don't really hurt you but but uh you know it's just a game i mean you have to you have to put those things behind you um you know, and I just felt like I was I was too close to doing something really special to let my emotion or or you know disappointment or frustration or anger even um, 
because of a misplayed shot I, to to let it affect me that that close to the end. I just I just couldn't do it. I mean, I had to figure out a way to, to push forward, and I and I and I did. Um, you know, I did with you know with getting that ball into the fairway or the first cut of the fairway there on on the on the last hole really kind of set me up. Um, you know, for the shot that that uh, you know that kind of sealed it. And Sean, as I've said to you many times and to this audience many times, I think you're one of the most underrated players of the 2000s. And I look back at, at 2006, you, you finished second at the PGA that year and you, you uh, and finished second at the, at the World Match Play Championship. But in doing so, you beat Tiger Woods in the first round of that match play event. You beat him four and three. And that was, as everybody knows, really at the height of, you know, his success. I mean, he had, he had won two majors in 2005 and finished second and fourth in the other two, and then would go on in 2006 and win two more majors and finish third in another. You draw him in the first round. And I think if it were someone yeah. like me and I, and I get Tiger in the first round, I'm thinking, geez, you know, no, no need to make yeah. long, uh, you know, travel arrangements here. I'll, I'll be done here in, uh, in a little bit and I'll be heading home. You go out and win four and three. Talk about that. Oh, that was a that was a great segue, Chris. Because um, you know, I uh, well, two stories really is uh, when I got there. Um, you know, Tiger Woods had won five tournaments in a row, um, five stroke play events in a row, and um, we got there. And nobody really cares that much, really, about seeding. Um, Tiger Woods being obviously the number one player in the world, everybody assumed that he was going to be the number one seed. Well, it turned out because Ernie was Ernie Els was the defending champion. Ernie was the number one seed, and Tiger was the number two seed. I was going to be the 16th seed, and then because of my finish in the PGA, it bumped me up to the 15th seed. And so, consequently, Simon Kahn from Europe got Ernie, and I got Tiger. And uh, <laughs> one of the funny things was that uh, we were driving. Uh, it, it was a great event. It's really too bad that it's off the schedule. Um, but what they would do is at Wentworth, they would give every player and his caddy and sometimes his agent manager, maybe a couple of family members or whoever, uh, they had a house for you on or near, right near the golf course. And they had a, they had a cook and they had somebody kind of look after you and stuff like that. And cause they were long days and we were playing 36 old matches. So we're driving around one day, this lady's picked us up and taking us to the course. And my wife, Stephanie was with me and she was, Oh, let's see. You know, she was four or five months pregnant at the time. And uh, they said, well, have you ever been to London before? And, of course, I had. But my wife says, oh, I haven't. She goes, well, she goes, well are you going to have time to see anything? And my wife says, yeah, we're going to go into London on Friday because Sean plays Tiger on Thursday. So <laughs> I, was already, I, was already, I was already defeated there <laughs> before I even teed <laughs> off. So um, I think she likes to remember that story a little bit differently. But that's that's clearly what I got out of it. And And so – um, you know, it's just, uh, I played well, played very well. I don't think Tiger, uh, I think he thought I was a decent player. I mean, was I at his caliber? Of course not, but it's match play and, and I was playing well. And, and, uh, you know, I think in the end, I, I think it surprised him a little bit because, uh, I was doing so well, uh, playing so well. I mean, I was probably eight or nine under, maybe 10 under for the, you know, 31 holes that we, that we completed, you know, so, um, I guess 32 holes that we completed. So I was playing really well and, uh, it just, 
you know, it just worked out. I mean, I, I played well, and, and he didn't play his best. Uh, greens were maybe a little bit slower than what we're all a little bit used to, and maybe I just adapted to those a little bit better than he did. It's, it's hard to say, but uh, it, it felt good. It felt good. But I always knew where I stood in the game of golf compared to him. I, I just it was a it was a, a nice kind of feather in my cap. But uh, um, it was it was a great event. It really was. Um, you know, I had a lot of stories from that event. My first time, I'll, and I'll digress a little bit, but my first time I ever played in that event was in 2000 and, well, it was 2003, right after after I'd won. I get over there, and I'm going to have to play VJ in the first match. So I wasn't feeling really well. So I'd gone over to the spot to sit in the steam room to kind of clear my head. I just not a, had a really bad cold. I just wasn't feeling great. And so I, gave, I came back, and I noticed there were some things kind of moved around in my bedroom. And I thought that was kind of weird. And then all of a sudden, we had somebody. While I was in the, when I was at the club at the steam room, in that time between me leaving and coming back, somebody had broken into our house while my caddy and my manager and the cook were downstairs, and had stolen like my my manager's credit cards. I think he, he still had his passport, but stolen money and a bunch of other stuff out of the house. So that was kind of my introduction to the world match play in 2003. It was wow. uh, getting robbed. Um, the night before the first match. And then I played well against VJ and he beat me and uh, uh, he buried the last hole of the timing and then, and then uh, beat me on the second hole of the, so he beat me in 38 holes. So that was kind of my, that was my introduction to the world match play. Wow. Great stories. Um, yeah. Huge feather in your cap. And I think something that you don't get enough credit for was, was that in the year that you had in 2006, um, one of the, one of the best years, I think, outside of the stuff that Tiger achieved, uh, for that, uh, you know, for that first decade of the 2000s, if it hadn't been for that shoulder injury, who knows, uh, what might've happened, uh, from there. Cause you were, like I said, you were one of the top players during that first part of the decade. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of regret that I have to this day really about that. You know, my surgery was, was in June of 2008. So we're coming up on 12 years, you know, um, but I really got injured in 2007 and I continued to play through that year. And, um, I think a lot of it was just denial. I, I, I just felt like, oh, there's something going on. I just don't feel like I'm, and I'm just looking at the stats. I had switched golf ball companies right in the middle, which, which created a lot, which created a big mess really for my manager and for me really. Um, you know, and, and I have since apologized to the former president of this company because, um, not that the golf company that I switched to was good or bad. It just, it, it, it just was one of the things that kind of, I started seeing some things that were, were not normal. And I said, oh, my shoulders bothered me a little bit, but it didn't, I could still swing. And um, I finally went to a doctor sometime towards the end of that year. And instead of getting an MRI, you know, I got a, I got a, a you know, an x-ray. And, um, I continued to play, I continued to practice. My shoulder continued to pop and snap. Uh, the first person that really hurt, heard my shoulder and mentioned it to me was Boo Weekly, and that was in New Orleans of, of 2007 uh, or 2008. Um, and then the person that really pushed me towards getting uh, a more in-depth look at it was Zach Johnson. Zach and I were playing the last round at the, at the Wells Fargo Championship at Quail Hollow. And he, he came up to me on the 12th tee box after I hit. And he said, Sean, I'm sorry. to Bobby goes, what is that snapping? My caddy and I have been talking about this since we started. 
we don't know if you're if something's in your pocket or what and uh it was my shoulder my labrum had torn and it was just popping and it just sounded like you like you clap your finger you know you snap your fingers that's what it sounded like and i was used to hearing it i just wasn't i didn't know anybody else could hear it um and then he had a person that was uh a physical therapist that he and i were talking about and i actually went in the next week was the players championship I went to see uh, President Bush's uh, former doctor, and, and uh, he did a quick MRI and gave me the film, told me it didn't look too good, and I took it back to the – I drove straight to the clubhouse, and, and Dr. Job, I believe he was the one that started the Tommy John surgery. He happened to be in our fitness trailer, and I asked him if he would put this disc in, and he, of course, had all the all of the, the PTs that, that work on the tour truck were there, and and uh, he said, Sean, I got to tell you something. He goes, I don't do surgery, but my good friend Dr. Andrews does. And that's that's it's kind of a long-winded story, um, really. But but again, it's one of the, one of my biggest regrets, I think, is to not have uh, kind of followed through with with listening to my body and and taking a bit more of a proactive role in in my own health. I think I was too stubborn to realize it was the last part of my exemption, and you know, seven and oh eight was coming up, and I played that Masters in oh eight. I just I had to play in it, and then I withdrew from the last three majors. So uh, it just uh, those things never come at a good time, whatever career you're in. It's uh, it, but it was a big regret of mine. Um, well, it still is. It is a big regret of mine to not have kind of followed up with uh, you know what I thought was a, was a big problem. It turned out it was, and and uh, it's tough at 39 years of age. I recovered well. I had a good 2010 and. And then, uh, of course, my mom got sick and passed away of lung cancer. And so it just kind of just put me on a downward spiral, I think, for a while. And, uh, um, so yeah, I mean, we, we all have things that, that we look back on and, and wish we could have done them a little bit differently. But, uh, you know, that's just the way life works sometimes. Well, Sean, before I let you go, for uh, all your fans out there that uh, are rooting hard for you like me, that uh, – or uh, checking the uh, have been checking the Champions Tour leaderboards and and looking for your name and pulling hard for you for for those of us that are going to continue to do so. Talk about how we can stay up to date with the tournaments you're playing and to stay up to date with uh, all the great things you're doing. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly, certainly PJTour.com has got got everything out there. I do a little bit of social media. I mean, nothing I I do is too profound on there. I, I like to follow more of a more of a follower than a leader. I always tell people I'm a boring follow because I just don't have anything that's worth sharing. Uh, I don't have any problems that I'm able to solve, so I don't put out a lot out there. But before we go, I would like to say one thing. There is, you know, being a former collegiate golfer at Indiana and uh, played there for four years, there was a story that I kind of came across with a couple, about two, three weeks ago, and it's from a, a university called St. Andrews University in Austin, Texas, a Division II program. And uh, the, the coach down there, Chris Hill, was doing an a interview with Colt Nost and, uh, oh, what's the show? It's called Gravy in the Sleeves or something like that, Drew Stoltz, I think. And they were talking about this program uh, losing, being um, eliminated from, uh, from sport in, at their university. And uh, it's really tragic, I think, with some of the things that are happening with uh, you know, athletic departments now facing, you know, major shortfalls, whether or not a lot of sports are going to be continued. There was a waiver, a petition for, you know, the NCAA to waive the rule of having 16 varsity sports, which would have cut out a lot of, a lot of people. Um, and, and speaking directly to like, uh, you know, non-revenue sports, golf and, and stuff like that. But, you know, they've, they've eliminated six sports down there 
and uh, told them I'd try to get out on social media however I could to, to try to generate interest in their program. Um, I, you know, I I have no ties to the university. I have ties to collegiate golf, and I have, I have ties to the men and women, uh, the young kids that go out and play and, and try to perform for their sports while being student athletes. And, um, you know, some of the what, what, they're, what they're being asked to do is, is uh, to me, is darn near impossible. But, but definitely a shout out to all the, all the student athletes out there that are, that are wondering whether or not there's going to be a place in their life for sport, um, you know, come this fall. I can't imagine the, the challenges and the difficulties that these universities are facing with uh, this, this, you know, kind of unrelenting pandemic and how it's affected everybody. It's had a huge trickle down effect on the PGA Tour. You're seeing events being, have been canceled, postponed. You're seeing champions events. You're seeing collegiate events. I mean, these, uh, it just it just had a trickle down effect, and uh, you know I'm speaking to golf. I know it's affected everybody else in their livelihoods as well, but I know golf, and uh, I know everybody's suffering. But I just look at the young people down there uh, at the universities like St. Edwards, um, that uh, great great facilities and 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 put on a great you know program for their kids to to kind of grow and mature and, and enjoy their college experience. Um, you know, maybe having that taken away. And, and uh, so I, I definitely feel, you know, for kids like that. And, you know, maybe, it's, you know, as my career is kind of coming to an end at some point here, I start thinking about, you know, what the kids and their future. And uh, it's hard to see some of these things that are happening. Yeah, no, and I couldn't agree with that more. And thank you for bringing that story out. And the trickle-down effect of this thing has been huge. And I don't think that uh, we fully grasp all of those sorts of things. Talked to Paul Levy about that in the last segment about uh, the tournaments that haven't been played, which have contributed to, you know, less amount of money that are going out to the charities that the PGA of America and the PGA tour support all the way down to the local charity events that happen every year that only raise a few thousand dollars, but those dollars are still important as well to the local charities that charitable golf, you know, golf, you know, golf courses have like, you know, yours there in Memphis. So the fact that we are missing all of those things and then don't know what the fall is going to bring, it's going to have a profound effect on the, the pro thing aside, because those guys are making multi-million dollars a year. I'm sure they'll be fine for those that aren't. And for the college kids that aren't, and they can't, uh, you know, you talk about the Olympics that got postponed and those kids that have been training for years and years and years, and now they've got to go another 12 to 18 months before they can realize their dreams. But it's, you know, for the college kids that are going to try to get out on tour, it's for the college kids that are trying to go from their junior year to their senior year and going to miss out on a lot of those things. It's, it's been a huge and a dramatic impact. I hope we get back to some sense of normalcy, Sean, but I don't know that we are. I just don't know what that looks like. You know, when you think about the sports that, you know, you go watch and I go watch and the football games that you've gone to see for the, the University of Memphis and the, and the Liberty Bowl that you go to every year and, yeah. and some of those things. There's no social distancing in those stands. I don't know what that's going to look like. Yeah, it's hard to say. It really is. I mean, I think there's a lot of there's still a lot of unknowns, but I can I can assure you that all of us are looking forward to turning on the TV and seeing some good news. Um, yeah, we it's, are. Uh, it's it's not uh, we're not seeing a whole lot of that right now, and and uh, you know nobody has a crystal ball, so it's hard to say. So you kind of deal with what you got at the present moment, and uh, but it's just you know these things are these things are real. I mean, people losing their jobs, and and I'm you know of course speaking directly to these to these young kids who who uh, you know are 
and, and these aren't scholarships. I mean, the men's team has 2.4 scholarships on a school that's a little over $60,000 a year to go to. Um, so it's, uh, it's tragic for everybody that's experiencing it. And, uh, you know, I brought this up just because, in a, just in a golf context, um, there's so many other people that are suffering as well. But I just look at the young kids and, and, uh, and my kids and everybody's kids that aren't able to go to school and, and those types of things and really what their future holds. It's a scary time for everybody, but more, even more so, I think, for the kids um, that are kind of losing out on some of the opportunities to, uh, to, to really grow into, you know, really good, solid human beings. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Well, Sean, I can't thank you enough for being generous with your time and, and coming back and be a part of the show. I always enjoy spending time with you. I hope we get the opportunity to do it again uh, in more positive times here in the not too distant future. Yeah. I, and like I said, I'll just uh, look forward to everybody being able to get back to doing what they love doing. Indeed. Well, Sean, Stay safe. All the best to you and your family. We look forward to catching up with you again, like I say, hopefully real soon. Thank you, Chris. I enjoy being with you. Be safe. All right. You too. Thank you, Sean. That's the great Sean McKeel, folks. Doesn't get much better than that. Um, He's not much on social media, but uh, he does uh, pop in every once in a while at Sean McKeel PGA on Twitter. And uh, hopefully we get to see him on leaderboards on the Champions Tour real soon. All right, my friends, it's time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks to Eric Johnson, Paul Levy, and Sean McHale for joining me. Please check out our website, nextonthetee.net. On there, you'll be able to see what our guest schedule looks like. You'll also be able to stream or download any of our archive episodes because we link back over to our page on podcast.co, and that's .co, not .com, so podcast.co. You can also find the show available as a podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audioboom, and Player.fm. Folks, as always, thank you so much for choosing to listen to the show tonight. We really appreciate the fact that you're continuing to make Next on the Tee a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.